Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest today is Dr. Jacob Seidel, professor of nutrition and health at the Free University in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. One of Europe's most distinguished nutrition scientists, Dr. Seidel, has been very involved with policy with the World Health Organization, the International Obesity Task Force, and other major groups in Europe. So welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you. So I'd like to talk about front-of-package labeling. Now, in the the United States, this is a very contentious issue because our government has, has given the food companies great flexibility in what kind of health claims, for example, they can put on front of package. And consumers report being very confused. They don't know if the information is, is accurate, if they're being misled, or whatever. And I know in Europe you face the same issue, but have, have, have really done some pretty amazing things compared to what's happened in the U.S. So give us some background, if you would, on what's happened with front of package labeling. Well, there are actually two issues. One is the, the nutritional claims and health claims that you can put on products. Uh, actually, the European Union has set up a r- sort of system in which you have to actually prove, like it, with the FDA, when you introduce new drugs to the market, you actually have to give scientific proof that actually all you claim is scientifically, solidly uh, proven to and work. Then, does that information have <clears throat> to be passed through government yeah. authorities, like the, the EU authorities? Right. There is a, a European Food Safety Authority that has a panel that looks at all of these claims. And the past few years, many thousands of claims have been filed. They've been working through them. And actually, most of these have been rejected. So about 95% of all of these health claims have been rejected on the grounds of insufficient scientific evidence. And so that clears a lot of the uh, information uh, confusion that is around. Well, there's probably a good lesson in that for the United States because we are so lax with the standards here that food companies can right. say pretty egregious things. So that's a nice model for us. Yeah. To have. But then there's the other side of front of pack labeling that is actually that it is so difficult for consumers to know what's in it. You know, they they have to pay attention to cholesterol, to saturated fat, to trans fatty acids, to added sugar, to salt, to you know all of these different items, and then to micronutrients and protein and all kinds of other things. And there are so many products and they have so much information on them that it's actually very difficult to make it a rational choice based on all of that information. So it's all there, but you need to be a scientist to really understand what's on it and how to interpret it and how to use it. Uh, so front-of-pack labeling is also used to have s- quite simple symbols on the front-of-pack to guide consumers um, to make a, a more healthy choice. So I know, I know in the Netherlands you have one of the more advanced systems in the world, and you've done a lot more research on this in the Netherlands, especially you and your colleagues. Yeah, it's, it's not ideal because what we would think ide- would be ideal is that government authorities set up a system that, that clearly is and is mandatory for every com- producer or people that sell products on the market to put on clear that, that front-of-pack labeling. That would mean mandatory labeling of criteria that are set up by government officials and scientific committees. <clears throat> that doesn't happen, <clears throat> ne- never uh, anywhere in Europe, I guess. Uh, it's all voluntary systems because the industry has said that, you know, they can deal with this front-of-pack labeling themselves. So it's, it's a voluntary uh, way of doing it. So that's second best, I would say. So the object is to have <clears throat> some simple symbol right. 
that would capture basically a nutrient profile. Right. All the qualities in one symbol right. for a given product that would be easy for consumers to understand and they could trust it. Right. So what we've, we've been doing is set up a set of criteria that are generic. They are derived from the WHO population criteria for dietary intake. So you shouldn't eat much more than so much percentage of your energy coming from saturated fat or added sugar or salt. And um, from this, we've created criteria that you could use for, lab for labeling. And one of the things that we've been doing is actually, if you do these sort of criteria like saturated fat and, and salt and things like that, then in some food categories, there will no product be complying to this, like soups and sauces and snacks and all kinds of other things. So there wouldn't be any choice. And one of the reasons why we have this front-of-pack labeling is one is to guide the consumer to a healthier choice, but also secondly, to invite or stimulate the um, food producers to make better products. Now, on cucumbers and, and cabbage, you cannot do much improvement. You know, it's already perfect as it is. And much of the innovation that needs to improve health will come of reformulation of existing products that are just too high in salt and uh, added sugar and saturated and trans fats, um, that actually we would like to provide consumers also with the better part of the market in those food categories. Well, that's a very controversial area. Some nutritionists would, would say you should never put a label that is a healthier option to a product that contain any sugar or salt or added, you know, trans fatty acids. On the other hand, a lot of people do consume these products. <clears throat> and um, if they are guided towards the best part of that segment of the, say, uh, snacks or something, and you would say only the products that are the best 10% in the market in terms of lower calorie and lower saturated fat and le less sugar and salt in it uh, would still have that label. So if consumers take stand in front of an aisle or in a setting where they buy foods like a supermarket, or a cafeteria, they would instinctively just have to look at the symbol and pick that soup and pick that snack and things like that. So let's talk about the, the symbol that you do have in the Netherlands. Yes, right. What, what does the symbol look like and how was it developed? It's, it's a simple sign. We actually now make a distinction between basic food groups like fruits and vegetables and some meats and dairy products that really provide you with all the nutrients that you need, and then the non-basic foods that are really all the things that provide a lot of calories but don't are, are not necessary to give you an optimal nutrition. And so you will have different colors for those different symbols. So you, you won't confuse, uh, I would say, low-fat spreads with f vegetables. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, you would know that within these categories, you would have the, the symbol on the best products right. within that category. Um, actually, what we have seen is that... Uh, what does the symbol look like? Uh, oh, it, it looks like a... An, um, a um, a check mark? A check mark. And it's um, against a sun or a, or a yellow. It's again, right, right. Mm -hmm. And so we have, in, this is in draft now still, but we have a sort of green symbol for the healthier choice, you know, the basic food products, and then an orange symbol for the uh, not basic food groups. Okay. So they can be distinguished by the color. And how are decisions made about what products can use those symbols? Well, we use these generic criteria, and then we code to see whether or not we can cover the best 10% of the market for the non-basic food groups, for instance. And um, interestingly, what we have seen is that um, it does help consumers to make a, a healthier choice, 
So you've done you and um, your colleagues have done some research on we've that. We've done some research on this in in, in what we call double blind uh, randomized trials, in which we have you know different settings like cafeterias where you put up a a new sandwich that has a healthy symbol, and you put up in a different setting, you introduce the same sandwich without a symbol, and you see whether or not people buy it more because of that symbol. And we've done a couple of those studies, and there is some effect on uh, consumers, but it's always reaching the most informed part of the consumers. You know, it's still there is a big segment of the population that's not really watching symbols. So the big part that we th- see as the benefit is coming out of the product reformulation that that producers have actually um, uh, accomplished over the, over the past few years. We've actually seen that. Companies that sign up actually make their products healthier in terms of adding less salt and less sugar and less saturated fat. So that actually also the consumers that don't really look at labels at all are still getting better foods. So I know one very interesting scientific issue is if you're making these product reformulations, let's say reducing the salt that's in soups or sugar in beverages or whatever, um, one issue is whether you tell consumers about it or not. What are your feelings on that issue? Well, I, I would say that if you compare it to, for instance, the uh, the development that people have taken out trans fatty acids, um, when they did so, they didn't have a new variety with less trans fatty acids and an old variety with a lot of trans fatty acids and then let consumers choose. No, they did just take it out and just sell only the foods that are better and, and more optimal for health. And I think actually that would be the best case also to do for uh, most of these innovations. On the other hand, you would like to know uh, whether or not consumers know that this is better, and you would like to guide them as well. So there's this sort of dilemma that we would like to keep consumers informed so that they know products have been innovated and that they are now healthier than before, so they better choose them in, in, over some other, other alternative. Uh, but still, <clears throat> some of these products, if you really put them on it very loudly, this is now low in fat and low in calories, that we have a lot of evidence that actually people may overeat on these products because they think it's sort of guilt-free um, consumption that they can eat as much as they like from these products without any penalty. So <clears throat> we would like to have a lot of these changes done done stealthily, if you like, you know, silently, uh, like reducing the salt content and saturated fat content of products. But we'd also like to have at least some signage to consumers that actually there are now better alternatives than there were before. Good. Just as an aside, um, you and I made a trip to an American supermarket um, to see how many choices there are of certain foods. What were, what were your impressions from that? I was totally bewildered. You know, if I had to shop in that shop, which was, I, I think, not an exceptional sort of supermarket. No, it was a typical large supermarket in right. the U.S. Well, we did start to count the bread, and when we were at around 100 varieties, we thought we had them, and then we turned an aisle, and then we saw 300 more varieties of bread. <laughs> so nearly <laughs> Which, 400 bread products. Yeah, absolutely, and there, I, I forgot the number of, of um, yogurts, but they were in there in the many well, it was hundreds. 200, it was 230-some right, something like that. yogurts. And I think it's actually very difficult for people to make a choice, because most of these are just variations in flavor, a little bit less more sugar and a little bit less of this and that. Um, and they look like there are very many options, but they're, they're really variations on the same theme. And actually, I was looking in a supermarket yesterday just to find an unsweetened, uh, normal, plain yogurt, which was very difficult to find, actually, because it was sort of hidden between the you know 250 other varieties and 
to just find it, you really had to look for it. And I think that's not very a very good way of making people aware of the different and better choices that they have to uh, to make. Um, so I would say <clears throat> there is probably an optimum in the number of choices that you uh, can make. And we can see that um, there is this issue of freedom of choice, you know, and that, that more choice is making you happier and healthier uh, than before. But that's probably not true. And for instance, in the uh, supermarkets in the U.S., I think it's about 45,000 different food products that are usually stored there or, or sold there. In the Netherlands, we have on an average supermarket about 7,000 to 10,000, which is way less. But I don't have had heard any complaints about lack of variety and choice there. So it's, it's a matter of, I think, um, 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 a, um, an idea that, that there is so much choice and so you can really uh, get the optimal way of, of choosing your food. But I think it's just an, a bewildering number of uh, varieties. Right. So with yogurt, for example, if you have too few choices, then the consumer would justifiably be unhappy. Right. But you reach a point where more choices make things worse rather than better. Right. Because you always feel that, you you know, you might have taken the wrong choice and you could have had a better choice. And, right. and there are just too many. I mean, you're just bewildered. And we know from experiments that have been in the literature for quite some time now that that there is an optimum, you know, you know, 10 kinds of jellies is making you happier than, than just one or two. But then 20 and 30 is actually making you less less health happy and, and more miserable because you, you're overwhelmed with the choice. And you actually, they've shown that instead of jellies, then you pick peanut butter just to get rid of all of that uh, well, dilemma. So thank you very much for your perspective. It's wonderful to hear about what's happening in the Netherlands. And you're very advanced in some of these issues. And it's nice, nice of you to share this with us. So thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. Variety of resources on the website about food policy, including a free email newsletter that gets dispatched monthly, a list of other excellent podcasts with visitors to the Rudd Center. Thank you.